to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, Paul Kix tells the story of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's 10-week campaign in 1963 to end segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. And he discusses the important actors in that series of events. Martin Luther King Jr., Wyatt Walker, Fred Shuttlesworth, James Bevel, Sheriff Eugene Bull Connor, John and Robert Kennedy, and others. It's published by Celadon, and Paul Fix joins us now. Welcome. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm okay. Although it's hot in New York and probably hotter where you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty much hot everywhere. But I'm actually calling you not too far from New York City. I'm calling you from just outside Hartford today. You begin your book by discussing the famous photograph taken on May 3rd, 1963, that showed a black teenager being mauled by a police dog. The German Shepherd was leashed and held by a white police officer. You say you began obsessing over it? I did, yeah. And that's largely because of the makeup of my family at that point in time. So maybe, Leonard, for your audience, it's important to tell a little bit of who I am as a way to get into who this, why I'm telling this story. Okay, do that. I am a, I'm a white guy who grew up on a, on a farm in rural Iowa. I married a woman, black woman named Sonia Castex from uh, inner city Houston. And by the time of my obsession that you were talking about a, a second ago, we had three kids in diapers, our daughter Harper and our twin boys, uh, Marshall and Walker, who were then around, I'd say probably six to eight months or so. I'd read a little bit of the black canon, uh, but really what I, what I realized now as the head of a black household was how, there's a lot that I need to learn. And so I started to read a lot about the civil rights movement. And there was one 10-week period throughout the whole of that civil rights period that I was just fascinated by. And there was one photo that sort of personified everything about the civil rights campaign. And I would even argue everything about America. And that was taken in Birmingham uh, 60 years ago this year uh, in the in the spring of 1963. And it showed, as you were saying just a minute ago, uh, a Birmingham cop almost like allowing the German shepherd to pretty much feast on this 15 year old boy named Walter Gadsden. And the thing that I began to think about was if this image were taken 50 years prior, right, in, say, 1913, the cop may be different, the boy may be different, but the circumstance would be pretty much the same. However, 50 years after that, in 2013, that photo represented something like real and lasting progress because it allowed me, I mean, just to get at the really granular level, as a white guy to marry somebody like Sonia and for us to raise our three kids. And so I began to be like, well, this is the moment. This is really our nation's origin story. And this photo is really almost the founding document, or at least one of those founding documents of that origin story. When America finally began to listen to everybody in the nation and say, let us try to find a way to be equal at long last. It really happens in the spring of 1963. So did you begin working on this before we saw the video of the murder of George Floyd by Derek no, Chauvin? No, 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 not at all. So for a very long time, I began to, to look at this in, in the probably around 2013, 2014. And I sort of put it aside because I'm just like, 
It's fascinating, these 10 weeks in 1963. I began when my kids were old enough to tell stories about what I really saw as the origin story of America. But you wrote a book happened. and said about what happened during World War II, a book called The yeah, Saboteur. Yeah. Nothing so, to I, do my with last this. Book was, yeah, my last book was about World War II, and it was actually, some of this was being carried out while that first book was, was I was doing the research or the writing. But really it was the, you asked about George Floyd, really it was the summer of 2020. And so here again, if I could tell another brief family story. Uh, Sonia, as I said a moment ago, is from inner city Houston. She grew up primarily in Fifth Ward. Uh, George Floyd grew up in the neighborhood adjacent to that, in Third Ward. Sonia and George were the same age in the summer of 2020. They were both 46. Uh, George went to Yates High. Sonia had a lot of friends who went to Yates High. In fact, Sonia's cousin, Derek, went to Yates and... And Derek remembered George uh, as the tight end on the Yates High football team that made it to the state championship game in 1992. So there was a lot of overlap between George, between George's stories and Sonia's. And because of that, really, Leonard, this was the first time that we allowed our three kids, who were then hmm. 9 and 11, to watch something like George Floyd died. I mean, there had been, you know, you know this as well as anybody else, there had been a long line of innocent black men who'd been killed by law enforcement officials and whose deaths had been filmed by body cam footage or cell phones in some way. But with George, because of the overlap between Sonia's history and George's, and frankly, our, my mother-in-law, Connie, also from inner city Houston, was then living with us. We all watched it as a family. And the boys in particular had a lot of questions about what that could mean. And we could see... The questions like, are all cops racist? And we said, no, or like, are these are just bad cops. And the questions actually devolved. We could see it was almost like these steps leading down to a, a form of self-hatred. You know, am I inferior in some way? And we decided that, you know, we've got to try to do something. So we returned to that spring of 1963. And for me, really what cemented it was, was the footage of George in conjunction with the the footage uh from uh jacob blake uh he was uh he was he was shot seven times in the back by kenosha wisconsin cops a few weeks after george died and that death was also not excuse me he did not die uh that that violence was also captured uh by cell phone cameras and and basically my son walker he saw that footage too and he ran from the room in tears and he said why do they keep trying to kill us and so Sonia and I sort of settled on a book project that very quickly became a family project of sorts. And that family project is this book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, which I think And is where does the that title come from? I'm sorry. Oh, the title? So that title that title comes from well first I think that this you know this ten week period is like the greatest period in um, that the, the greatest story that America can ever tell itself. And that quote that that title is actually a quote from a, a hero that I think everybody in America should know. His name was Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, and mm -hmm. he was a pastor in Birmingham at a time when it was so very dangerous to be a civil rights activist in the way that that he was. I mean, okay. Birmingham was known as Bombingham back then for mm -hmm. all the unsolved bombings uh, that that you were mentioning at the top of the show that Eugene Bull Connor didn't even choose to investigate as police commissioner. Uh, it was a place where black women were raped in police patrol cars. It was a place where black men were castrated by the Klan. Uh, Edward R CBS's Edward R. Murrow, just to try to set the stage, 
he goes to Birmingham just prior to 1963. And as he finishes his report for CBS, he turns to his producer and he says, I have not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany. Hmm. That was Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And Fred Shuttlesworth, even before King was there, but especially during that spring of 1963, especially then. Wasn't the idea of the Christian Leadership Conference's executive director, Wyatt Walker, to use use Public Safety Commissioner Bull Connor's virulent racism against him? Was that the initial goal? And with a four-step process of exhalation planned? Yes, so it was. So... So there are, when we think about 1963 today, we tend to think it's all about King. Your your question's a great one because it really shifts the focus from somebody like King to somebody like Shuttlesworth, who we've already described for a second. And now I want to talk for a second about Wyatt Walker. Yes. And then we have to talk about James Bevel. James Bevel. Yes. So there's, so I I choose, I choose three guys um, and I choose them because they played outsized roles that spring, that spring, excuse me, James Bevel. Wyatt Walker, Fred Shuttlesworth. Those three had had much more to do with what happened in 1963 in a way to change America forever than uh, King did. So Wyatt Walker, let's let's first talk about him. He's the he's the executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In that capacity, he's the one who goes down to Birmingham in advance of them going there in the spring of 1963 and thinks about, okay, how can we actually try to create to sort of incite anger from Bull Connor and other virulently racist white people. And give, the, on, the wait, give the waiting press corps all the gory copy they all, needed, he said. All the gory copy they needed. And it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's really tactically brilliant what he settles on. Um, and King, when he hears it, King would later say that Wyatt Walker had one of the keenest minds in the movement. And the amazing thing about this plan, it, it was typed up on, on eight pages, single ty- or single space, excuse me. And normally, <laughs> this is something else you need to understand about the SELC. The SELC, we may think of all these guys as pastors, and they were, but Leonard, they had massive, outsized egos. Like, they were always in competition with each other. And the amazing thing about Wyatt Walker's memo is that nobody, at least initially when he, dis- when he dis- uh, disperses it, nobody had anything to say about it because that's how thoroughly he had thought it through about this is how we will escalate the tension. This step, then this step, then this step. It was a matter of moving from uh, uh, daily, daily meetings at night that would lead to protests at lunch counters that would then lead to massive uh, protests of the downtown core because, the, because blacks made up 25% of the downtown shopping area. And the thinking was, if blacks aren't shopping there in that spring of 1963, white businesses can't survive in the downtown core. That would lead to a further escalation of more, back, more people protesting. Those protests would lead to more people in jail. Those more people in jail would lead to, would lead to uh, more people wanting to join the protest. So this whole thing is like thought through exquisitely. And and to bring protesters to Birmingham. To bring them to Birmingham from all over the nation. That was the initial goal of Wyatt Walker's eight-page memo. Yes. Didn't Bevel push to recruit children and teenagers to join the protests? Yes, Uh, he did. Which, of course, becomes a major part of the story. It's a major, major part of this story. And and the, the reason that Bevel does this is because Wyatt Walker's grand plan for Birmingham failed miserably. Uh, it when they actually when the protests actually started, 
almost nobody in Birmingham wanted to join it. They didn't want to join it because a lot of Birminghamians, black Birminghamians in particular, were frosty toward King. A lot of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference came from outside the state, and a lot of them, a lot of those leaders came specifically from Atlanta. And so they saw them as interlopers coming to, you know, decide Birmingham's business. They didn't like that. These were black Baptist pastors. These were black Baptist lay leaders. In addition to that, over half of the city of black uh, Birmingham were domestic workers. So what that meant in those first few weeks of the protest was that black Birminghamians thought, well, if King's going to come through here, he's going to do what he always does. He's going to try to like stir up all this uh, almost like as a way to sort of promote the SCLC. Then he's going to leave by that. Something that's very important to remember by 1963 King had not had any significant victory. He was ridiculed by the Northern and Southern press. He was ridiculed by other civil, civil rights groups. Everybody was very suspicious of King. And the thinking was if he goes ahead and, and wants us to protest, everybody who was black in Birmingham was employed in some way by a, by a white person. And every white boss was saying, if you protest, you're going to lose your job. Hmm. And so to bring it back to James Bevel, Bevel was the first guy to say, well, there's one group of Birminghamians that we could recruit who don't have jobs, and that's kids. And that idea was ridiculed for, for days, if not weeks on end. Because it's just like, again, just to go back to where we were saying a second ago about Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow says he has not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany. And now James Bevel suggesting that instead of adults, let's put kids on the front lines in this civil rights campaign. Hmm. King was just shocked that Bevel would even propose it. But when they ran out of options in early May of 1963, King didn't so much agree to allow the kids to protest as much as Bevel just showed the reasons why they should. And eventually... They did, and it led to some of the most momentous days in the whole of American history and that photo that we were talking about at the top of the hour. Now, you said that the SCLC had to deal with internal rivalries, endless deliberation. Did these horrific events save the organization? Not really, no. I mean, if anything, they, at least initially, they furthered the divide between between everybody for instance uh james bevel and wyatt walker so wyatt walker is kind of the the man with the grand vision james bevel's title was the director of direct action it just basically meant that he was the operations lead so he had to take wyatt walker's vision and manifest it on the streets and for the longest time james bevel and wyatt walker didn't get along in fact they hated each other in fact wyatt walker argued repeatedly that King should fire Bevel. But after the gruesome and bloody success of early May, and we can talk about that if you want, uh, about like how bloody it was. Well, we'll get to it. Yeah. But we have time. There was, there, was, there was some discord that remained, and it took, in some sense, the whole of that campaign for various people to see eye to eye. I mean, I found this stuff fascinating, Leonard, because... It wasn't just along sort of the lines of one's ego or ambition. Hmm. There were deep class divides, too. We talked about Fred Shuttlesworth a moment ago. He's from the poorest of poor country in rural Alabama. 
and he's trying to be on the same level. He and 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 King were the ex- basically the the public facing leads for this Birmingham campaign, and throughout basically the whole of that spring, Fred Shuttlesworth remained deeply suspicious of what King's aim really was. Let me even tell- though publicly they they were very much eye to eye. My guest today on London Low Pit at Large is Paul Kicks. His book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America from Celadon Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Why Birmingham? Wasn't it founded in 1871 during the post-Civil War Reconstruction (laughs) period? It is, yeah. So how did it become a center of neo-Confederate revenge sentiments? Yeah, so... This comes back, we were just talking about the sort of the economic class divides. This is Birmingham is itself a reflection of that. Yeah, it's formed after the Civil War. And basically, it's formed as a southern outpost of northern interest. There were a lot of raw materials in those hills in Jefferson County that, say, steel or coal barons up in the north, specifically in Pittsburgh, could exploit. So what happens is all of these northern uh, barons and northern financiers, be they from Boston or New York, would would find these these people to manage these uh, steel and coal mines and everything else in Birmingham at the early part of the 20th century. Those managers themselves didn't live in Birmingham. They lived in a suburb outside of it, Mountain Brook. And so as a result of that, you had sort of very poor white people being exploited by their managers and then ultimately, again, the northern interests uh, in Pittsburgh or New York. And you describe Birmingham as poor, dangerous, polluted, and marked by one of the lowest literacy rates in the nation. Yeah, it was. For for a long stretch of the first half of the 20th century, it was. So why does it become so racist? Well, the poor whites couldn't couldn't really lash out against their bosses in Mountain Brook or their bosses' bosses up in Pittsburgh or New York. So they lashed out at the people who were just as hard up as they were, which was the black people. And so this, I mean, the the Ku Klux Klan had the largest clavern in the nation in Birmingham in 1920. It had over 20,000 members in Birmingham alone. And the Klan came to signify basically this idea of don't like we aren't the problem, they are. It was a classic us versus them ism. And it's like, you know, we are going to lash out against anybody who's trying to be on the side of black people because they saw the poor white people saw themselves as in uh, in some sense um, on the same setting as anybody who was black. And that set off a sort of inferiority complex that lasted generations. I mean, there's there's a lot of people from Birmingham at that point in time who would later, some of them like in the Saturday Evening Post, would go on to write about this inferiority complex that lived within Birmingham. And it's part of the reason that somebody like like Murrow would come in just before King does and say, wow, like this place is just a festering pool in a very dangerous and almost evil place. And it had a lot to do with those class divides. Should I assume that there were Klan members on the police force and that would also have some kind of impact? You should very much assume that. I mean, Bull Connor, whose title 
was officially the public safety commissioner in Birmingham at that time. He unofficially ran Birmingham and he ran it by fear. And basically, he made sure everybody in the city knew that he had barely cloaked ties to the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, you would see him at Klan rallies. The the Klan, um, <laughs> it's amazing. One of the things that's kind of amazing when you're doing research like this, Leonard, is you go back and you read the notes. So the police, the police kept voluminous notes on the SCLC over that spring. They were in basically every mass meeting. And when the Klan would hold rallies, the police would be there too, sometimes in an official capacity, sometimes in a quote, unofficial capacity. So we can very much read between the lines there and say that they would put on the white hoods. Various cops would. There's no reason to doubt that they wouldn't uh, because Bull pretty much wanted, this is something else, like Bull was so corrupt that anybody who tried to do his job as a cop on an, on an honest day pay, which Bull set very, very low, Bull himself would ridicule and say, you need to find a way to, you know, make more money. So if that meant running some sort of scam that the Klan was overseeing, if that meant like there were there were literal criminal rings within the police department. All of this is documented. All of this was eventually even prosecuted, but it didn't matter. Like Bull Bull had this power because for so many Birminghamians, he spoke he spoke a sort of very populist message again about like we are not the problem they are the problem let's do everything we can to make sure we enforce our way of life there's a there's a there's a there's a way of doing things he kept saying down uh down here but you write that bull connor was quote never quite the disease of birmingham but a symptom yeah yeah so if he wasn't there would we have had somebody similar probably we, we probably would have. Bull was ambitious. Like, here is where, as the journalist and historian, I'm trying to see things as objectively as possible. So, you know, Birmingham was a broken city, and Bull came from a broken home. His, his dad didn't have very steady work. He was sort of in and out of his picture uh, uh, when Bull was growing up. Bull himself had led a somewhat itinerant early lifestyle, like early, early adulthood, excuse me. Uh, he was a he high school never dropout. Graduated from high school. I'm sorry, Leonard. What was yeah, that? I was asking that. He, wasn't he a high school dropout? He was a high school dropout. Yeah, like he had a, he had a, he had an. I mean, it's 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 it is both endemic of what was happening and also a just sort of just an accident. But like, bull. Bull had this accident with a gun and and he was bull, he was blind in one eye. And hmm. to me, like one of the other things that, that that episode speaks to is just from a very early age, there was nobody to watch him just as there were like seldom anybody to watch any of these kids. I mean, it's just, you know, there are there are people, poor white people, poor black people who were in Birmingham are just basically struggling to get by. And so if the parents were around, they worked. The kids would often just roam the streets. And Bull was definitely one of those kids. So he, as we said, worked a number of dead-end jobs, but then saw, as you write, that, quote, a hatred of blacks and drawn-out populism toward whites could propel a political rise. So he got involved. He, he thought, maybe I should go into politics? Yeah. So what he does is he he becomes actually, a, he actually works in, in radio. Um, he, he becomes a, a broadcaster for the Birmingham Barons, which is a minor league baseball team based in Birmingham. You mean there's he still had, a chance for me to succeed? 
to be a to be the broadcaster of the Birmingham. You know, I I, I think the Barons are actually still around. Yes. I'm speaking a little bit out of turn. I don't I know. I think they are. Yeah. Um. Uh. So anyway, the the way that he would call the games was something that like people just loved because he would kind of like create these scenarios and he would tell these stories right about what was happening in the game did it matter that that's what is actually happening in the game not necessarily so once he realizes that well there might be an even larger stage for me he starts to tell other other myths and other stories only now he's setting them in a political arena and suddenly everybody in, in who was white in Birmingham elected him for literally a generation. And again, I want to repeat, like, this is a guy who dynamited the car of his political opponent. Hmm. This is a guy who had literal, like, criminal rings operating in his police department that he basically championed because that meant that they were making ends meet by a way that he didn't have to use from the public coffer. And yet, election after election, he's reelected because he tells white voters this story about themselves and about the greatness of Birmingham, Alabama. Now, civil rights activists used economic boycotts and demonstrations to seek integration of, of stores and job, job opportunities. Obviously, they weren't effective. So did is that why they uh, invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his team to help because they had been unable to negotiate much change with the city or business leaders? Yeah. So this is this is kind of fascinating. So there is so there's um there's a there's a Miles College, which um, is an historically black college in uh, in Birmingham. In 1962, it stages basically an economic boycott. And one of the things that arise out of that economic boycott is the whole of Birmingham, black and white, settling on a vote that would mean that it would try to wrest some of the power from Bull Connor. It would just basically say, instead of Bull being the public safety commissioner, let's move to a more classic mayor and city council system. Well, Bull runs for that, and we'll get, we can get to that in a minute about what happens. But the reason I bring that up now is because the SELC looked to the relative success of that modest economic boycott of downtown, where they, this was in this, again, the, in, the, in the fall of 1962. And Miles College students were able to recruit enough uh, of black Birminghamians to say, don't shop downtown that it elicited some sort of political change. Again, this sort of, this everybody in Birmingham getting upset enough where they say, well, let's, let's create a new mayor and city council system. And as a result of that, King and the rest are like, and especially Wyatt Walker, who we were talking about just a second ago, he uses that as part of his argument to say, well, let's stage an economic boycott downtown. And the problem was by the spring of 1963, because again of the, of the, how unsuccessful that first month was in April of 1963 in getting black adults to protest, there were more and more black adults who continued to shop downtown and basically defy the order uh, to, to, you know, to not shop downtown. Didn't so they see it, sense, it the being in their best interest? I'm sorry? Didn't they see what was being proposed as being in their best interest? I think if you talk, well... The, the oral histories that were compiled just after the campaign paint a slightly different picture. It shows black Birminghamians saying, look, let us solve the problems of Birmingham without somebody like King coming in. Again, Miles College is in Birmingham. So they're like, well, that's fine, because these are some college students and, and, the, and the president of the time at Miles College who's helping to institute this. By the spring of 1963, you have the, the nationally known SCLC and the almost mythic king 
And there was this resentment of like kings coming to kind of stomp on us and tell us what to do. And initially, black Birminghamians were like, we aren't going to listen to that. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Birmingham Jailhouse, Birmingham Jail, waiting for freedom in Bocana's jail. Three thousand prisoners, more coming in, even little children are singing this song. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Paul Kicks. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book. You just you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. During today's show, we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950. Don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Paul Kicks. His book, again, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Uh, His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, ESPN, The Magazine, among other publications. And um, let's go back to the time. Uh, The day after the April election, Dr. King and local civil rights leaders began what was called Project C, against the Birmingham business community. What did the C stand for? (laughs) The C stood for confrontation. And the idea was that there had not been enough of it in... in the SCLC's past. Uh, What they really wanted, and this was Wyatt Walker's thinking, we want to go to the very site of white terror, which was Birmingham, Alabama, the most racist city in in the most racist Jim Crow South, the most violent city in far and away in the Jim Crow South. We want to go to that epicenter of domestic terror, and we want to anger every terrible white person there. Because they thought if they could do that, then perhaps they could get what they really wanted, which was not just to break segregation in the most segregated city in America, though that was first and foremost the goal. Really the goal was to find a way to, through the violence that would be, that would be sort of inflicted upon them, find a way to convince the two people watching this coverage or seeing these photos in the news to convince them that something needed to change. And those two people were the Kennedy brothers sitting at 1600, 1600 Pennsylvania uh, Avenue, who, to, who to, it, by 1963 wanted absolutely nothing to do with civil rights legislation because they thought it would hurt Jack's reelection bid in 64. So... As far as the uh, demonstrators were concerned, nonviolence was a major component. Was the goal of the campaign to gain mass arrests of nonviolent protesters and overwhelm the judicial and penal systems? 
Yeah, that's that's the goal, right? And they modeled it a little bit off of what Gandhi had done in India. Uh, in, in with Gandhi in India about a generation prior, it was the same thing as what they were trying to carry out now in Birmingham in the American South. It's let us let us not only have arrests, but let us have so many arrests that we fill the jails, and then if we fill the jails and continue to march after that. Then we really get, we really force Bull Connor, excuse me, to make a choice. He can either cede to our wishes, he can relent and grant us what we want, which is an integrated city and a victory potentially that Washington could pay attention to, or we think what he'll do, and I'm speaking here, the we is in the voice of the SCLC, we think what he'll do is actually what he's always done which is instead of ceding any ground, he's going to turn his own violence and hatred against us and unleash fury against us and all of our protesters. You know, I think something that needs to be said out loud is like when you think of nonviolent protests, some people almost have in their minds something that's timid. Leonard, it is the furthest thing. Well, they have to be brave timidity. to know that you're going to be facing the kind of reaction that was obviously going to happen. Yes. And you have to do it with no weapon in your hand and with the understanding that when you are struck down, you should rise only so you can be struck down again. So this was a way of demonstrating to both local residents and the national media the strong desire uh, to exercise their constitutional rights as, as citizens? I would say yes. I would say there was another, there was another goal here, and it's really... The, television was a new medium then, and so what they really wanted to do was use this newest of medium and find a way to relay one of the oldest metaphors of the black experience, which was that of suffering that of suffering at the hands of white oppressors. And so they thought that if we can show, if we can turn our bodies into vessels of suffering, into these metaphors of the black experience itself, perhaps those metaphors, those stories will be ones that the Kennedy brothers at long last pay attention to. And they can begin to author their own chapter of U.S. history, which is at long last they would maybe agree to sponsor civil rights legislation, which nobody like... From Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 to the spring of 1963, there had been numerous, numerous, numerous attempts to pass something like civil rights legislation. And for 100 years, they had failed. And so King and the rest were like, let us try on the 100th anniversary to finally put something, put some sort of sponsorship on the books and have an administration sponsor civil rights legislation. And that was the whole, that was really the point of the, of the of Project Confrontation and the Birmingham campaign in Birmingham, Alabama. So Project C was really important, but isn't this the first book to take an in-depth look at it? I Well, yes. So here's the thing. Why do you think that is? I don't, I the wish Leonard, I could story. tell you. So here's the thing. If we go back to like 2013, when I'm first reading, I, I, I read a ton of books and there are, by the way, fantastic civil rights books, right? Like uh, there's, there's King wrote about uh, this period. Um, Taylor Branch writes tremendous civil rights trilogy. Diane McWhorter wrote specifically about Birmingham. She wrote about it from a 10 year stretch, but here's the thing. I was so captivated by the time my kids were, you know, again, like six months old and two years old from that period on, I was like, I am just riveted by these 10 weeks because 
again, the SELC had failed miserably in the first seven years of their formation. For 100 years, there had been nothing like equality since emancipation. Then 1963 happens, in the spring of 1963 happens, these 10 weeks in particular, and then everything changes after that. And I was just like, for a long time, I'm like, I guess that's just a quirk of publishing that nobody's ever done this, ever done a book on this. And it was really after George Floyd died, and suddenly the story became personal to me and my family that I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book both as a means to tell this sort of origin story and as a means to sort of inspire my kids as a guide for how they might live. And in fact, the book is dedicated to them. But yes, to the specific point of why has nobody done this? I wish I knew, but I'm so glad that I got to because I'm like, I love like to, to go super, super deep on just these 10 weeks. It was riveting the entire time I was researching it, the entire time I was writing it. Didn't Dr. King want there to be massive arrests to highlight the brutal police tactics used by Connor and his subordinates and the general suppression by other Southern police officials as well? Yeah, that was see, that was that was really one of the the goals of it. If we can just get enough people arrested, perhaps even as they're being arrested, Bull Connor will use some of the tactics tactics that we know he wants to. And for the thing was, Bull was very wily for a while, and, and he didn't. He didn't necessarily employ those tactics until in May when he decided that he had no choice and he had to. Throughout April 1963, Dr. King led small demonstrations, uh, which resulted in his arrest, along with many other arrasts. So, yeah, Con- and this is the thing was, that, that, that was Con- Connor's new approach. Yeah, yeah, it was. Bull Connor was was so unimpressed with the SCLC for basically the first two weeks, he didn't even show his face, and then. Uh, King himself says that he is going to march. And this is during uh, Holy Week. So there's, we were talking a second ago about metaphors. Here's another metaphor, right? Like the, the, the leader will emerge on Good Friday and, and perhaps go to his martyrdom because the SCLC didn't really know that if King went to prison, how long he'd have to stay there. There was a lot of talk about him having to stay there for six months. If he stayed in prison for six months, the campaign may die. But if he decided to not go to prison, then he would be ridiculed by the press. And so just before Good Friday on Monday, Thursday, he went back and forth, back and forth on what he should do. And eventually he decides that he has to protest regardless of what could happen. He said, I have to make a faith act. And this is one of those stories. This is one of those times when the story becomes not just one of civil rights, but one of King's own faith in him and him really struggling with what was right as a man of faith to do and he he in his own words he had to give it up to god to figure out what it was that would be right and he felt that god wanted him to march and so he marched and then he was arrested and like there's just stories on top of stories in this 10-week period because that that arrest then leads to we were talking about founding documents a second ago that arrest leads to another founding document of what i see as this origin story which we'll of america to, which we'll get to in a moment but yeah and uh, not just arrests of adults connor's deputies arrested 973 children in a single demonstration they did, yeah. In in early May, uh, May second, they arrest nine hundred and seventy three kids, and this was, th- th- this was just an outlandish sum. Like nobody thought that that they could actually get that many arrests in a single day. And James Bevel is really owed the credit there for doing that because he was able. He was able. We were saying a moment ago how King sort of just relented and let Bevel do what he wanted in early May. 
that was definitely the case. He just sent those kids out there. And on May 2nd, they were peacefully arrested. And they came so very close to literally filling every jail in Birmingham, the city of Birmingham, and more broadly across Jefferson County. How far into the campaign was the famous photograph that we began this conversation with taking? Uh, that would have been the following day. So what we just described, 973 arrests, that happened on May 2nd. On May 3rd was, the, was that photo. And that photo... To sort of know what they were walking into, the SCLC used uh, a lot of code names and code words. So the, the the whole campaign was known as Project C or Project Confrontation. The first day, May, uh, May 2nd, when the kids actually marched and 973 were arrested, that was known as uh, that was known as D Day. The following day was known as Double D Day, and it would be for reasons that were very much true to sort of militaristic uh, bearing. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Paul Kix, K-I-X. His latest book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, published by Celadon Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. After Dr. King was arrested and jailed, he wrote his letter from Birmingham Jail. It was seen as a moral argument for civil rights activism. How effective was it initially? <laughs> um, initially, in the first couple of weeks, it, it had a very small... There was a Quaker magazine that initially published it. But if you want to take across the, the period of that spring... It ended up being it ended up being seen as King's manifesto. I mean, by the time he finishes that, by the end of May, people see the righteousness of that argument. People see the lucidity of that argument. People see really the brilliance of that argument and what what he discusses there. And what I try to do in the book was really just not just describe the letter, but describe this like fifteen year intellectual trek that King took to arrive at the ideas that informed the language that he used in that letter. I was Leonard so very fascinated by this intellectual awakening that led King to write this letter in the way that he wrote it. And how long before it led to nationwide sympathy for civil rights marchers? I think that that probably really begins the letter itself is released in late April. It starts to circulate a little bit. There's, again, there's a Quaker magazine. I want to say at some point in early May, the I think it was the New York Post, which was then a fairly liberal newspaper, um, published excerpts of it. It was a quite liberal uh, newspaper before it became a quite conservative newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah, before, yeah. Rupert Murdoch changed it when he bought yeah. <laughs> Rupert Rupert did change that, yeah. So uh, so back then it was a somewhat more liberal newspaper. But really, if you if you're asking just about the sentiments of what changed in Birmingham, it was really what happened during Double D Day that more and more people began to see nationwide the argument that King was making about like why there was a need for integration, why there was a need to integrate a city like Birmingham, why something like civil rights legislation was necessary. And you said before, until this point, the Kennedys appeared to be indifferent to the black struggle for equality. Why do you think that was? Uh, they were from Massachusetts, uh, I assume. And they weren't racist. They weren't, but also they were very much— It was just a matter of getting them reelected. 
it was it was re-election there was also like there were strange sympathies in mid 20th century america to the southern the lost cause of of the old south uh, and Kennedy himself wrote a paper about it when he was at Harvard. And by the time that he and his brother Bobby were in the office, uh, you know, Bobby would say, I, when I was elected attorney general, I didn't have, I didn't think really at all about civil rights. They believed in equality, but they were very suspicious of King because basically King was arguing for equality over and over and over in the early years of 19 of the 1960s in the America that the Kennedys ruled. And they were like, what, what is his angle? Why does he keep want to, wanting to do this? And Bobby, you know, we need to remember that before he was this liberal lion and this real bastion of equality and civil rights and civil liberties before all of that, he was overwhelmingly his brother's protector. And if he didn't fully trust King, there was no way he was going to allow Jack to trust King. And so Bobby did everything in his power to limit King's influence from uh, his perch in, in Washington and to almost diminish that influence. How relevant was the fact that there were many Dixiecrats in the Democratic Party at that time? That was huge. Absolutely. I mean, that was a big part of why the Kennedys didn't think they could sponsor civil rights legislation. They didn't think they would say this to civil rights leaders like King. They're like, even if we sponsor this, we won't be able to get it through Congress, which was true. But the argument from the counter argument from King and other civil rights leaders is you don't take this. You don't take this legislation to Congress. You need to find a way to take this to the American people because we believe they had a, again, this is, we talked a second ago about King and his faith. This was another way in which King had to really put a lot of faith on the line. This time, faith in the American people. King believed that Americans themselves would side with him if they, if they just began to see America the way that he saw it as a black man. And, but the Kennedys for a long time were like, there's no way we're going to take that risk. So how soon afterward was the Civil Rights Act that was the beginning step in the dismantling uh, of, of segregation enacted? So it happens, it happens about a month after. So there's D-Day, there's double D-Day where there's just unbelievable violence uh, that happens. Uh, and then there's a series of like, there's, there's a bombing in, in Birmingham. There's, there's all this other stuff that happens. I mean, James Baldwin gets involved. Harry Belafonte does. Again, this this the beauty for me of, of doing this book was really just stories on top of stories. King gives from these his famous weeks. speech in Washington. I have yes, yes, and it's and it just goes on and on and on. It's just so after all of that, Bobby, Jack's protector, he's the one who finally says, "I get it." I see what King was saying all the time, and it really comes along the on, down on the line of. You know, Bobby had eight kids in the spring of 1963, and, and he and Ethel were uh, expecting their ninth. Wow. And it was Harry no. Belafonte who said, you need to understand that these are our kids that are on those front lines. These are our kids that are going to suffer. And if you can see that less as an attorney general and more as a father, then finally, maybe you can see the way that we see America. And that's when it woke up. Everything woke up for Bobby. And so he went on this rampage of a sort to try to convince others within the Kennedy administration of what he saw. And no one wanted to do it. 
But ultimately, in the early June of 1963, he was able to convince his brother of the vision that he saw of America, able to show him that vision of what it was actually like. And they had always talked about Jack and Bobby like they wanted to try to do something that was epoch-defining, right? Some piece of legislation. And the, the, the history of the Kennedys at that time very strongly suggests that it was Bobby saying, look, this is it. Everything, putting aside everything else, this is our chance. If we want to really define this administration, we have to author civil rights legislation. And Jack was later talked to his commerce secretary, I believe, and said, you know, we might very well lose uh, Democrats for a long time. And he did. And they did. I mean, it was all it was well, ultimately an argument LBJ makes. Many of them yes. switch parties. Yeah. Yeah. But they decided we have to do this. So on June 11th, 1963, Jack goes before the nation and says, I'm going to sponsor civil rights legislation. Nobody in his cabinet wanted him to make that primetime address. Nobody except for one member. The attorney general, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, who said this is exactly how we have to introduce the sponsorship of civil rights Where legislation. Was Lyndon Johnson and of course, that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Where was Lyndon Johnson? And, and all he was, well, he was, of course, a vice president. And so, Lyndon, it's, it's messy with Lyndon, right? Because he authors a, quote, civil rights bill in the late 50s, but it was so weak, it effectively did nothing. It just scored some points for uh, Northern liberals who said, well... They did that, but but on the ground, it had no discernible change whatsoever. It was really after Kennedy's death where you see LBJ in some ways reflecting on his own uh, disadvantaged childhood and in some ways recalling what had happened in Birmingham and now reflecting on like any message or any sort of a way to honor uh, JFK, and you know, history will say that, that those two didn't exactly get along all that well anyway. But in any case, that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And for me, we can there's like that. That's really what begins to change everything because it's. Go on, go on, Leonard. Yeah, I could finish your point. I was wondering if it was supported on a bipartisan basis. Considering yeah, so the so the Civil Rights Act today in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> It was, you know, it was a time where, well, well, here's basically what happens. The images from Birmingham are so grotesque and so in your face because of how effectively the civil rights leaders in the SCLC in particular used the media in the spring of 1963 that not only like representatives from, say, Brooklyn, and, and there were a few who were out on the front line saying the Kennedy brothers need to get to this sort of progressive point. But there were other people in the South who were like, we just need something to pass so that there aren't 50 Birminghams, 100 Birminghams, because suddenly there were all of these protests very similar to Birminghams in all these other Southern cities. And so the Kennedy brothers began to hear, as did ultimately Johnson, that if we're going to have a chance to set some sort of accord and perhaps calm the nation down, we need to sponsor something like civil rights legislation of course that civil rights legislation of 1964 leads to the voting rights act of 1965 and from there i see that as really the founding of this new nation because it leads yes to king's death in 1968 but it really leads to a new life for his country and yet the struggle for civil rights has continued to this day so i think uh, it yeah it always will but here's what i would say to that women's rights gay rights, 
And in particular, and this is why this story of Birmingham is so relevant to me. It's my ability to marry someone like Sonia in a former Jim Crow state like Texas. Mm. And for us today to raise our kids where nobody harasses us for who we are. Yes, progress remains. In fact, King would say you should not, in his own time, he said, you should not be impressed with the progress all around you. You should strive for more. I have to leave it here, unfortunately. But my yeah. great thanks to Paul Kicks. His book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America from Celadon Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you about these important events. Thank you so much, Leonard. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you. We're going through a rough time right now, have ever since the pandemic hit, and we're hoping that things will turn around. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212 212- 2092950 or give the number 2wbai.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Begin to Live by Paul Kicks. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy for a month. It allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope that you will help us with your tax-deductible support. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Sean Mirsky discussing his new book, We May Dominate the World. We'll see you then.